Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station XS Manchester The XS Manchester Long Player An iconic album in full With Jim Salverson XS Manchester Welcome to the XS Long Player Another classic album Delved into with one of the people At the centre of that album On this episode I discuss an album I absolutely love but also an album I appreciate that not everyone will be massively familiar with because I guess it was kind of underground when it came out in 2006. It would have been played on a few indie radio stations at the time but certainly you wouldn't class it as mainstream despite the fact it sold tens of thousands of copies and went silver within a few weeks of release. I'm talking about the debut album from Get Cape Where Cape Fly, Chronicles of a Bohemian Teenager and for today's show I'm talking to Sam Duckworth aka Get Cape. This is a really cool chat with Sam in which he discusses the anger under the surface on this album, why he didn't go into a studio like Rockfield to create it and instead chose to do some of it in Barebones Studios or even his bedroom, and how he feels about the album now as he looks back 15 years on from its release. If this isn't an album you're massively familiar with, then I can 100% recommend giving it a listen. There is a Spotify link to the album in the podcast description, so go and have a click on that. Go and have a listen before we delve into this, because Sam references a few songs on the album, and it would help if you knew the songs before you listen. But enjoy this. Sam Duckworth, a.k.a. Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly, talking about his debut album, Chronicles of a Bohemian Teenager. Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly, a.k.a. Sam Duckworth. How you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Can I call you Sam for this rather than Get Cape? Is that all right? Of course it is. You don't feel like you're being told off by your mum when you refer to by your full name or anything like that? Well, it's very rare that people will full name me when it comes to the band. <laughs> Good stuff. Right, we're going to be looking back at your album, The Chronicles of a Bohemian Teenager Tonight, which came out back in 2006. And I was actually surprised it did come out in 2006. Just ticked over its 15th birthday caught me off guard a little bit because I remember the album coming out doesn't feel like 15 years ago does it feel like 15 years ago for you I think for a whole generation of people that got into music in 2006 15 years has completely crept up on us and taken us Mm. by surprise I don't think it was just me with this album and I think there's quite a lot of other records that came out in that time we're like wow it's 15 now yeah it's it's flown by I'm still grateful to be making music, grateful to be talking about this album 15 years on. You know, I think that's something that um, also has taken me by surprise is that it's flown by and people still love it. 
There's been some celebrations around the birthday recently. It was released on gold vinyl for the 15th anniversary. There were some gigs planned, but as with most gigs this year, they've been pushed back to next year. But I guess that's caused you to go back and have a look at this album again with that 15-year breathing space. Has your relationship changed over the course of a decade and a half? What's interesting is that um, the label that I put the record out couldn't find, let's put it this way, the um, artwork masters for the record. Okay. So when it came to repressing it, it was a, a full top-down rebuild. So I got in touch with Jez, who's the guy that did the artwork 15 years ago and dug through the archives. So it was actually a really good opportunity to look back on 15 years of my career and um, in, in the run-up to the repress. And then, obviously, it was only two or three weeks before the tour that the shows got moved. So I was also musically quite ready for it. Mm. So it was... It's interesting. It's a, it's a perfect time to do this, really, because it's not that I haven't thought about it, but it's that I haven't really listened to it or analysed it. I thought I was, um, yeah, I guess songs evolve over time. They evolve in your set. And I thought I knew it quite well, but then I listened back to it. And I was like, OK, yeah, this is um, this is different. So, yeah, it's been a really good time to um, to celebrate to celebrate the fact that, you know, first album has you know, allowed me to continue making music for 15 years. That was always my ambition. So I'm grateful to be in that position. But yeah, just, you know, real proper walk back down memory lane was, was fascinating. It feels like a very personal album when you listen to it. And what does that feel like being 15 years older? Because I've talked about this before with people, particularly when they've written albums from the heart or albums when they're very young. The songs are almost like diary entries. And I know that if I had a diary that I'd written 15 years ago or when I was younger, I would not want to be looking back at those entries without breaking myself in half cringing how does it feel i mean from obviously from the outside looking in it doesn't feel like that but when you look at the words you were writing and the songs you were creating at that time is that part of you that wishes you could go back and do them again not in the slightest to be honest like lyrics have always been a big deal to me mm. it's been something that i've really cared about and i'm very aware that the songs that i'd write when i'm 20 are not going to be the songs that i write when i'm 35 and one of the things that's a real joy to be in the studio working with new artists is you really you know well, artists of all different ages to be honest is you realize how much you pick up along the way there are bits where I'm like oh I'd do that differently but on the whole you know I try to even with the personal stuff I try and wrap a little bit of third party you know poetic license yeah. into it because I guess at the time you know listening to a lot of you know, emo music or political music I was aware that if it was going to be part of my catalogue I'd need to feel like I'd be comfortable singing it as an adult, mm. not just as a teenager. But to be honest with you, I think we, we all look back on our photos and our memories from, you know, when we were in our late teens, early 20s. And a lot of it's fond and a lot of it's like, oh, I'm glad I learned that or I'm glad this is not like that now. Mm. I think it's actually quite nice to have those kind of referential yardsticks on in, in my set that I play. Because it kind of, it reminds me that, you know, that kind of, I don't know, sometimes instinct gets confused with naivety and, and, and it's okay sometimes to just think that, you know, the world doesn't have to be so overly complex or poetic. And mm. I think it's a nice reminder that sometimes the best way to say something in a song is just to tell it how it is. And I think that this album certainly got big elements of that to it. Let's go back to the making of the album. And I understand this is a very homemade album. It was recorded in your bedroom. So take me back there. If I was sitting on your bed alongside you making this album, what would I be able to see? What's around you at this time? Well, I think that, I don't know whether it's marketing or a bit of a myth. Like, I think there's a couple of things that, it was certainly a DIY album. Me mm. and um, 
a couple of friends who had a have, have a studio like a, it was at the time it was in Letchworth Garden City it was like a basically a car lock up there and then converted into a studio by Andy and Adam Mensch who um in a band called Booming the Diamond Industry and Andy was drumming for me in in the band and I think I think sometimes you know there's so much romance around bedroom records but everyone's still trying to make it sound as good as they can I think that what's interesting about this record is that the first EP and four of the songs made the album really were bedroom. You know, it's by uh, Chris. He had a, a little setup in his bedroom in Tolsbury in North Essex and kind of recorded the EPs then. And the original plan was for none of the EP tracks to make the album. The EP tracks being Get Cake, Wear Cake, Fly, Glass Houses, I Spy, and. It has been 15 years. I can't remember the fourth <laughs> one. It will come to me. <laughs> that's so funny. I thought I'd, I can uh, hear you Googling. That's how long this video. Yeah, you can hear me Googling it because, well, I'm actually on Spotify because, okay. you know, that's that's going to be the best place for me to, to it's, it's going to be much better than my memory, clearly. So there were four tracks that um, that are on, that are on the very first EP. Uh, Whitewashes, Brainwashes, the other one, of course. Obviously, first song on it. Um, so they they were bedroom, so um, very primitive versions of Logic. When you still had to use a dongle to use it, you could probably use like twelve channels of audio max before the whole thing melted down. And <laughs> um, we, you know, we took some of those stems, we did some of those bits, and then it was super hot. And I remember there being a World Cup on, and we moved the studio at one point to um, Adam's uh, dad's front room because it was the only place that we could get any oxygen. But, you know, like we, were, we were passionate about the idea of learning and working out how to make records. I think that there are, you know, there's a natural curiosity that comes from artists that love to explore things and also love listening to electronic music to really want to learn more about the studio process. And um, we're going to bin those tracks off. And then we did I Spy as a B-side for Call Me Ishmael. And um, everybody's like, what are you doing? You should just put those out. And in the end, that ended up being a double A side rather than a B side. And then all conversations about who to do the record with were kind of like, well, let's. They, they were just like, well, do you guys just want to get on with it? And I'm like, yes, please. You know, we, we were able to do it in a way that was comfortable for us, in a way that yeah. we wanted. It didn't necessarily feel like it had that overarching pressure of a of a major label recording process. You know, you, you, you felt the presence of the label, but mostly left to get on with it. Do you think you missed anything because you weren't involved in that? You weren't like stuck doing a residency at Rockfield or anything like that. You didn't have that big walking into a studio guitar under your arm. This is your debut album moment. Do you feel like you missed anything? You missed a part of your, I don't know, musical life because of not having that moment? I probably missed out on some anecdotes more than I missed out on experiences, <laughs> if I'm honest. Like I've been, I've been grateful and fortunate to be in some amazing studios, but for me... Recording records is as much about process as it is about sound. And I don't know, like the big residential get away from environment. My, my records, are like I've only really learned this since probably looking back on Chronicles, actually. They're so intrinsically linked to the environment that they're written in. Right. You know, I kind of almost, I do as much of my writing as I'm walking about looking at stuff as I do when I'm with an instrument in my hand. You know, I've always been on the principle of like, you kind of work out what it is you want to do. And then when you play, you just join the dots. So I think if, you know, maybe one day I'll make a, an album about how beautiful the countryside is. But until, until then, <laughs> I feel like, you know, my, my words are influenced by 
you know urban environments and also the the spirit of get capes always like try and do as much as you can as best as you can with the resources that you have and i feel that you know i was fortunate to get the opportunity to make a big record for my second album you know mm. with my favorite producer with, uh, with an orchestra and you know do something quite i guess unexpected in comparison to the first so i don't feel like i missed out on any experiences i just sometimes i think that you grow you should grow to those points so you really know like when you're a band maybe fine you got to play in the same room and stuff but you know we were we were completely excited by computers and technology and fusing those two things and i've been in enough sessions in recent times where it's an aux cable plugged into a massive mixing desk to go well maybe it was the right call i want to go back to the technology stuff in a moment actually but before we do you might have already answered my next question in a roundabout way because now the timeline's slightly confused when i was looking at it so i can't quite work out what happens where but i think you would have been writing this album and creating it whilst you were touring and playing gigs around the country and you kind of got a bit of a reputation when you're playing these gigs for getting up and up close and personal with fans going out with them after gigs sleeping on floors do you think that helps you understand the audience that you were writing for when you were creating this album the fact that you were there in the crowd doing things with your audience yeah, I don't think anything's changed, to be honest. I mean, obviously, at the moment, it's a very different backdrop. And I think that's partly why the tour needed to be moved, because mm. I would really miss that. You know, I'm very, uh, now, and, you know, as, as, it's not that I don't like sleeping enough in, in strangers' houses, but I'm definitely somebody that, you know, and certainly as I've got, got older, prefers to sleep <laughs> in a bed rather than on the floor. But otherwise, I, I love hanging out with people. Yeah. Like one of, you know, I think that, I don't know, sometimes I think I look at there's two types of music. There's music, there's entertainment and performance and that kind of comes with that, you know, the narrative of stardom and all of that. And then there's the other side, which is just people going around singing their feelings out or passing messages on through song. I've always seen myself more as that kind of artist. I love to play. I love to be in an environment, you know, in a musical environment, chatting with people. I love to get, you know, inquisitive as to how regions of countries and the world are different and where the overlaps are. And I feel that that's always been, you know, quite central to what I do. And sometimes I find it quite frustrating because it's, you know, it's marketed so heavily that it feels like it's a gimmick. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of singer-songwriters, that's their life and always has been and always will be. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly as at home, you know, I'm just about to go on, tour supporting Deacon Blue and I'll be playing arenas, but I'm just as happy to be in the back room of a pub. Like, you know, I think the music is so often, it morphs of its environment. You do different shows depending on where you are. And I I love that. I love that challenge. I love that flexibility. And also, you know, it, it was never really about like removing the myth or anything because I literally don't see there being a myth. When you've been on tour and you've played a load of shows, you see people at all kinds of, you know, and and all kinds of stages of the creative process. And therefore, you know, I don't really see it as a myth and I see it more as like an extension of a lifestyle choice maybe, or, you know, part of a... Historic duty sounds a bit much and a bit pompous, but like, that's what singer-songwriters do. They travel about. That's what keeps the songs fresh and new and interesting and not just about building walls around you and closing mm. yourself off. Like sometimes, you know, I believe in that kind of life is a participation sport. So 
always keen to, you know, meet and work with promoters and people that are taking chances and setting up things. And my musical life has been blessed as much by the weird and wonderful situations I found myself in meeting people as much as it has been from playing big stages and enjoying being an artist. Going back to the technology behind this album and trying new things, it does feel like a really forward-thinking album. There's loads that goes into the production, samples, loops, tiny toy megaphones, the whole shebang is in here, which is maybe a slight point of difference to the other, let's use the term singer-songwriters that were doing the rounds in kind of those 2005, 2006, 2007. When you were making this album, did you feel like you were doing something that was different to the other music on the landscape at the time? 100%. And not in a way to be like, wow, I'm different, but just I, I a lot of my drive is to, is to try and do something that sounds like me. And mm. I have a wide range of influences and a, a wide range of things that I like. And it's, you know, it was the same with Andy and Adam. We were listening to music that wasn't just played and written on acoustic guitars. I was touring in a scene that wasn't really acoustic guitars at all. And, you know, I loved, I loved bands like Athlete and Gomez and the bravery of, like, mixing things up from parts of electronic and 70s world. You know, I love Ronnie Sides and I love, you know, mixing up of beats and grooves and drum bass and that, you know, in particular, songs like Brown Paper Bag where with the acoustic and the drum and bass screws sitting together. That's always something that I loved and it's only increased my love for trying to do different things over time. I guess... I'm less precocious in it. I think when I was younger, I was like, no, it has to be different now. I'm quite happy to sit back a little bit if the occasion calls. But yeah, that, you know, I've always believed that this is my space to set out my stall as to what it is that I want to do. And as a result, it meant that, you know, some bits really worked and some bits don't work. And that, and that's fine because it's, it's fluid. You know, 15 years down the line when you're performing live, you just shift out the bits that get in the way or turn the volume up on the bits that are different and, you know, still an unusual combination. In terms of the lyrics of the album and the subject matter, it's always felt to me when I've listened to it, quite a political album. And you say you're influenced by what was going on around you at the time. In spots, it certainly feels like almost an angry album. Do you see this as a, as a protest album or is it just that happens to be part of the picture that was your life at that particular period? I think it's the gap between the feeling and the protest. You know, that's where I see my my political songs as sitting in that moment where you initially felt, you know, for me, the two most central things to my personal existence are class and race, whether I mm. like it or not. You know, I was born into a working class household as a British Asian in South End. It's like I think we're only starting to have big conversations about, the, you know, the overhangs and the impacts of that now. So, you know, I would always feel sad or angry if there were things that would would come into view that were now with the modern language, you know, issues of privilege or exclusivity or whatever. Mm. That, would, that would make me angry and I needed to place it somewhere and I wanted to place it somewhere positive and that would be into music. So I think, you know, my, my music is political because my life is political. I think that lots of people's lives are political because... We're all products of our environment, and our environment is one that is is political. Um, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to write about that, but I'm much more comfortable talking about that than I am about feelings and stuff. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's the reaction of a 20-year-old British Asian from the punk scene and grew up in a working-class house in South End. Like, at the time, 
and and even really now like for a demographic of four million people british asian people aren't really represented too much mm. in indie world or acoustic world or you know for many times it was two or three people across a whole festival bill and so not until that changes i'll stop singing about it but you know we only need to look at what's going on at the moment in yorkshire cricket club to know that there is serious implications into the way that this country is and has been and my dream would be to not have to feel it Mm. but i'm more aware that the best thing for me to do is to acknowledge it through song than it is to acknowledge it through resentment because it's a product of something far more complex than just individual decision making and you know that's something that when I look back on that record, there's a few songs that I still play every gig where I'm like, that sentiment is important for me to keep it going and keep that, you know. And I'm writing a new album at the moment where I'm actually kind of responding to some of these songs 15 years down the line. Okay. Because I, be- I really believe that there was a kind of, over the course of the pandemic, there was an emotional revolution of kinds, you know, when it comes to issues of race and identity and patriarchal structures and I feel like there were some ugly conversations that I didn't know the language for 15 years ago and I do now and it's kind of interesting to see how that anger has kind of moved or evolved or where I've been able to separate isolating feelings from wider constructs it's quite it's quite fascinating to think that I'm a political songwriter because I had no choice like Mm. I I feel that's quite a weird um a weird place to be like the older I get the more it's like wow okay those songs were like real reflections on peripheral viewpoints that maybe hopefully don't exist so much now we might get to talk more about that in a moment because I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of tracks off this album I, I sometimes call them highlights but they don't have to be highlights they can be favorite songs they can be songs with stories they can be songs with memories attached to them it's completely up to you I just want you to pick a few that you want to talk about off this album but there's a couple I want to talk about first, if that's okay. And they're the title tracks off the album. Mm-hmm. Two tracks, Chronicles of a Bohemian Teenager, part one and part two. Now, it's always annoyed me slightly that part two appears on the album before part one. And I think it's just my OCD kicking in that I like things to be in order and I want one to be before two. So why does two feature before one on the track listing? One was written before two. So that's part of it. And two, I always envisioned playing this album from beginning to end. And I knew that, you know, the album should end with blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and I've only done it twice in the 15 year gap. So it's actually quite <laughs> nice to, um, you know, it's like, if you want to talk about a slow build. It's a slow build right there. <laughs> to be honest with you, the whole Chronicles of Bohemian Teenager thing was a bit tongue in cheek. Like there were so many records in like the folk scene, punk, you know, the adjacent folk scene that just had such ludicrous titles. I was like, what's the most ludicrous title I can give this record? And it was named after that song. You know, those song titles were getting out of control. I was going to say, was that something you like to play with? Because the band name in itself or your name, Get Cape, Wear Cape, flies quite whimsical. You've got that track on there. I think it's might be the second to last track of the album. I'm probably going to get it wrong if I had one pound for every... Yeah. song title i'd be 30 short or something i forget that was chronicles, chronicles four that's why it's but then i thought i can't have one two four because then people will ask me about three and it just right. i think i clearly didn't put enough thought into <laughs> what it might mean 15 years later and that you know when you asked me earlier about regrets actually that's quite a big one that it could have made my life a little bit easier right pick me a couple of tracks off this album sam that you either love or hate or they just bring back memories from the making of this record 
Well, I love Chronicles 2. I think for me, that's a sweet spot of what it is that I was trying to do at this time. You know, it's kind mm. of a bit folk, a bit punk and a bit drum and bass. And, you know, that to me is like people said, what's the Get Cape sound? It's like you get most of it in that song. The other that's similar is Call Me Ishmael. You know, it kind of, I love how it shapeshifts and it moves around. And it's really funny because I made my second album with an orchestra and everyone's like, he's working with an orchestra. Where's that come from? It's like, well, there's a whole string section in Chronicles too. And there's a whole string and brass section in, in Call Me Ishmael. Yeah. So it was, it was always there. It was just, it was never called an orchestra. I've always loved those sounds. Like for, for me, what I loved about computers, and this really does bring it to tech back to full circle, is that there were things that were possible to do then that aren't possible to do now. And then that's maybe why it wasn't about going to Rockfield because I could sample strings and I could mash them up and do things that, you know, would have taken hours and thousands of pounds and, you know, loads of experience. And it was possible to just mess about with stuff in samplers on a computer and have the flexibility to see if it worked or not without taking ages. And, mm. you know, th those two songs to me typify certainly Ishmael lyrically and certainly Chronicles 2 musically. What, you know, Get Cape is to me anyway and what it's supposed to be about, which is that it's a mashup. You know, it's a song that's mm. written and played on a guitar and then everything else is from a different world. And then it's just really the real challenge is trying to get it to all balance across an album. Those two are like, I could put them out tomorrow and be happy with both yeah. of them. Given that your your passion, particularly with this album, seemed to be kind of that pushing a technology, that combination of sounds, maybe drawing from dance music and bringing it to indie. What was the thinking behind Once More With Feeling being the opening track of the album, which is, it's got this kind of very, really beautiful, almost Spanish acoustic guitar intro. It's quite stripped back compared to the rest of the album. Yeah, super fast. That's one where I was like, wow, okay. I like, did not let any of those <laughs> breathe. That's definitely like early 2000s, isn't it? It's like finger pick songs. It was a race to get to the end almost. I like albums that start with an opening chapter and a closing chapter. Right. You know, also by this point, I think a good half of the record had already been established. You know, we'd put four tracks out on an EP, two had come out, a couple had found their way into the set. And I like a song that looks into an abject future because it allows you to then later on look back like I, this is sound like a strange thing to say but i like talking before songs sometimes right i think you have if you've got songs in your catalog that allow you to say what you want to say in the present and i think that that song being first is it sets the tone you know okay. it sets the tone that like mostly it's an angry bum out album but like the hope is that it will change you know i think that what i do well or what i enjoy to do the most is be on the up the beginnings of the up curve okay you know I, I tend to write songs that kind of have a fit that feel melancholy but you know lyrically they're kind of turning a corner and i think that you know it's important therefore to have either like a concluding statement or like something that sums the whole thing up at the beginning of a record and, and sonically it's just a nice way to kind of lull people into a false sense of security that it was going to be a pleasant indie acoustic <laughs> Is there another track you'd like to highlight off this album? Well, I really like Whitewash's Brainwash. That's another song that I feel that, um, you know, we, we were kind of switching it up and it's a bit more garagey when we play it live now. But it's interesting. It moves. It's got a quite unusual shape. I like the, the guitar part. I think it's funny because I think some people know me for my singles and some people know me for my album tracks and there doesn't mm. really seem to be any overlap in the middle. And weirdly, they're, they're quite 
they're often quite different. So it's nice to have a song like that that kind of is still quite a hooky, but what you'd call more an album track than a single in terms of its structure and its, you know, it brings in some of the acoustic, you know, elements, but also it mashes up some electronic. Uh, the, the bass line's a bit more atypical of what you'd expect for a song that moves like that. So that's a song that, you know, lyrically, weirdly, annoyingly holds up as well. You know, when you write kind of direct, addressed political songs, you kind of think that things will change. But mm. yeah, Whitewash is definitely one that, you know, feels like it's something that I would, I'd happily put out tomorrow. Brilliant to hear you talking about a couple of your tracks. We're going to hear the views of someone else, so I hope that's okay. We're going to talk about reviews. I've done a few of these long players now, and I quite like to dig back into the reviews of albums from magazines and music publications. And what I've noticed that in the early noughties, there was a horrible habit from the music press to be deliberately sneering and deliberately negative and I don't think you 100% escaped that. My second album got savaged, savaged. It was almost felt like a takedown. It was one of the, it was like two months, of, it was like the worst two months I've ever had in my life. It's just, yeah, you just feel like you're getting ripped apart. It's, I'm glad that culture's changed. I think it's awesome mm. that people are allowed to like and dislike stuff, but there's, it's way less personal attacks. Well, you'd call it trolling nowadays, wouldn't you? I, mean, I think in the modern culture of social media, the trolls are still there, but the trolls aren't getting paid X amount a week to write music reviews. That's the, that's the kind of subtle difference now. So to go back, I don't want to go over old wounds, but the, right. all, the allmusic.com, so the words were that they used, not particularly different from the other vaguely introspective young singer-songwriters out there with his plaintive, often monotonous and sometimes whiny vocals and simple acoustic guitar chords, it can get a little repetitive. Firstly, I'm not sure they actually listened to the album, but secondly, you're 20 years old, you've just released your debut album. Does that hit you hard? Or are you able to come over it with the arrogance of youth and it just makes you even more determined to succeed? To be honest, ones like that where it's like, oh, the guitar playing's not very developed or whatever it's like well no it's like not not and that's not an arrogant thing that's just years of practice mm. you know yeah cool like sounds like everything else super whiny that's fine if that's what they think but thankfully lots of other people didn't think like mm. that and i didn't think like that those ones i don't mind it's always ones where it's about lyrics that i find difficult because i totally get that i've got a slightly whiny essex accent and you know my finger picking's flat picking and not you know the kind of more beautiful style. Like I get all of that stuff. Like that's all points of difference, and and people are totally valid. It's when people go, oh, you know, lyrics are bad or the lyrics are naive. They're the ones. They're the ones that do my editing. You know what? Sixty thousand copies sold early doors. Went silver early as well. Best solo artist at the Enemy Awards. I think you probably proved them all wrong. I think you probably did all right out of it. Well, you know, it's it's wild. I, I was randomly playing a show in Leicester, and I found out it went gold about wow. two years ago, and I was like. This is bonkers. People must still be listening to it regularly. And sometimes you look at Spotify statistics and you think, oh, you know, this is just clever playlisting from a label to try and make a bit of extra cash. But it really does seem like people are listening to it. And I don't know, accolades don't really bother me so much. Yeah. What bothers me is the ability to carry on doing this because I love it. And, you know, the, the fact that people are listening to the album and, and it, it, it meant something to people is much more of um, a reward. I think one of the things that was bad about that culture is that not all music is for everyone. And I think that now we've got a lot more um, scope and scale in terms of understanding that different, you know, not 
I guess there was a rush to ubiquity at that point because everything was still through traditional channels. The internet wasn't really a thing. iTunes didn't exist when this album came out. You know, neither did YouTube. So it's now you, you can find things that are small niche. You know, if you're into if you're only into dark wave or you're only into super minimal tech, you can find the places that will review the records that you would you, you would like and the sure. sources of where to purchase them from or where to get recommendations. And I think that we've always had a great culture in it in the UK and radio because you can hear people's enthusiasm and you can't fake it. But we certainly in the early 2000s had a wobble in the press in terms of it, it, it almost felt more like at times like racketeering than it did actually honest reviewing. And to me, the best reviews are always in a record shop. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm super grateful of with this album. I have to go to loads of it in stores or record shops and see the record out in the wild in the place that it was designed to be. Sam, brilliant to chat to you. I've really enjoyed talking to you about Chronicles of a Bohemian Teenager and personally going back to rediscover this album because it's been a long time since I listened to it right the way through. That's been a joy as well. So really appreciate your time on the Excess Long Player. In terms of what you're doing now and the tour that you've got coming up, like I say, we're recording this interview November of 2021. Are there still tickets available for the anniversary tour that's happening next year? Yeah, so it moved to March and April. There's a few tickets left in most of the cities. And um, yeah, we're going to be playing the album in full with a full band, you know, full full horn section. So it's going to be fun. You know, it's going to be a mixture of a faithful representation of the album, but it's also going to have 15 years of joyful musical experience and great people alongside it. And loads of great venues. Just really looking forward to, um, to kind of see what everyone looks like 15 years on. <laughs> And in terms of new stuff, what's around the corner? So I'm actually recording this uh, interview from the studio at the moment. I'm three quarters of the way for a new album recording. Maybe end of next year, hopefully. Good to hear it, man. Really nice to speak to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Boom, we're done for another episode of The Excess Long Player. We have one more episode to go. If you're listening to these in real time when they're released, before we're going to take a little break. So while we're on a break, make sure you are subscribed and following this series. So when we do start up again, you get a little notification. You get to know when we will be releasing more episodes, more classic albums discussed with the people that made them. There's loads more in this series to go out as well. You can listen to the last episode I did before this, which was Oasis, definitely maybe that album. I spoke to Alan. And Miggy about that. I really liked the chat with Pigeon Detectives about their debut. The Badly Drawn Boy one is a good one as well as he talks me through Hour of the Wildebeest. In fact, you know what? They're all good. Go and listen to them all. And if you like what you hear, please do leave a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find this show and it helps spread the word. So if you're not going to go out and tell your mates or knock on your neighbour's door and tell them how good the excess long player is, just do a review instead. Dead simple. Right, I'll be back very soon with another episode of the excess long player. Take care. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Access Manchester.